It's the SNL Hall of Fame Podcast. With your host, Jamie Dew. Chief Librarian, Thomas Senna. And featuring Matt Ardill. And now, Curator of the Hall. Jamie Dew. All right. Thank you so much, Doug Nats. It is great to be here, as always, inside of the SNL Hall of Fame. It's raining outside today, so I'm glad to be inside. But that means that there's a little mud outside, so you're going to have to be extra careful and wipe those feet for me on the mat that says, wipe them. So there's that. My name is JD, and I am thrilled to be with you here on the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. It's a weekly affair. In each episode, we take a deep dive into the career of a former cast member, host, musical guest, or writer, and we add them to the ballot for your consideration. Once the nominees have been announced, we turn to you, the listener, to vote for the most deserving and help determine who will be enshrined for perpetuity inside the hall. That's right. It's just that simple. You listen, you vote, and we celebrate. So get those voting pencils ready because we we are in the thick of things. This is episode 10. And by episode 20 or 19, is it? Uh, it's 19 or 20. We'll be announcing the new class of Hall of Fame members. So there's that. This week, we are joined by Brad and Gary of the Not Ready for Primetime podcast, and they are here to give Michael O'Donohue a second nomination. He was nominated back in the first season, and he's remained on the ballot, hovering at around, you know, 20 to 30 percent. It's not looking good. It's not looking good for Mr. O'Donohue. I think he's only got a couple more years left on the ballot before he's dropped if he doesn't make it. And um, that that would be a, a travesty for somebody as seminal as uh, Michael O'Donohue. But Brad and Gary are going to give it their best shot today to win you over. But before they do that, we are going to talk to our friend Matt Ardill, who actually was the one who drafted him in the season four draft. And I, I think Matt's going to have something to say about uh, Mr. O'Donohue. So, Matt. Hey, Jamie. How you doing? Great. How about you? Great. I know I've gone to bat a few times uh, for this guy. So, yeah. hopefully I help sway the vote this time around. Uh, if not, I will officially give up and move on. Uh, so, today <laughs> I'm looking forward to talking about Michael O'Donohue. Well, we're looking forward to hearing what you have to say. So, hit it. Okay, his height is unknown. What? You know he was born January 5th, 1940. Born in New York. He is a New York iconoclast through and through. As a small kid, he was bullied, um, but quickly found out that while he may not uh, be the best at keeping himself from getting beat up, he was able to get vengeance. He stated, I found that I could make a remark that could keep them crying in their pillows for the next three days. (laughs) So he was content with emotionally traumatizing them in a way that would probably haunt them until the day they died. Right. He has 26 screenwriting credits and eight acting credits, including Scrooged and Guild Alive, which started as a Broadway show, which he and other SNL writers co-wrote 
with Gilda Radner. Famously quoted as saying, making people laugh is the lowest form of comedy. Hmm. His first published story was an erotic satire called The Adventures of Phoebe Zeitgeist. And it is about as disturbing as you would expect it to be. Jesus. He followed this uh, as one of the founding writers of the National Lampoon magazine and subsequently the National Lampoon Radio Hour after writing a successful comedy album, Radio Dinner with Tony Hendra. As well as writing comedy, he has a successful career as a country songwriter. What? Penning Dolly Parton's Single Women. Huh. During his time on the Lampoon, he was one of the most well-known and notorious... Sorry, retake. During his time at the Lampoon, one of his most well-known and notorious pieces was the Vietnamese Baby Book, an unflinching attack on the war in Vietnam. He was so well, quote-unquote, loved by Lampoon readers, one quote-unquote fan mailed him a package full of live dynamite. Yeah. Um, very polarizing figure. Yeah. Very. Uh, when his co-workers... Uh, were being generous, they'd say he wasn't easy to work with. Hmm. An absurdist to the core, he released Mr. Mike's Mondo video with many of his SNL collaborators in 1979, which was a loose collection of sketches. His second wife, Cheryl Hardwick, was the musical director of SNL as well as the musical director for Sesame Street and the film Man on the Moon. He passed away in 1994 at the age of 54 from a cerebral hemorrhage. Gee whiz. Well, that's a downer to leave it on, Matt. Uh, but we're going to leave it there. And uh, we're going to head downstairs to Thomas in conversation with Brad and Gary of the Not Ready for Primetime podcast. Take it away, fellas. Yes, Matt and Jamie, thank you so much as always. And this is our second episode where we actually revisit and relitigate somebody's candidacy. I love this idea, love the concept, and got a very interesting nominee tonight. It is, of course, Michael O'Donohue, an early season writer. And my guests are perfect for this. They've been covering the early seasons of SNL on their uh, wonderful podcast, the Not Ready for Primetime podcast. So, Brad Robinson and Gary Seath, welcome to the SNL Hall of Fame. Thank you very Thank you. much. So you're now covering season two of SNL. So, uh, Brad, uh, just kind of tell the listeners, like, how's the podcast going so far? You're delving into the SNL podcasting sphere. How's that going for you guys? <laughs> it's it's going good. Yeah, we jumped in, both feet into the deep end. Um, it's been a lot of fun. We've just uh, finished up season one, covering all of season one last month. Season two uh, just began a couple weeks ago. 
We've got you on our show again, a return guest, season one, and you're back, uh, I believe, it'll be tomorrow's episode of episode three from season two. But it's been great. It's been great seeing and revisiting this awesome era of Saturday Night Live and watching it all come together really from the ground up. It's been so much fun. Yeah, and it's a totally different experience kind of going back and watching every episode in a row, in order, and and talking about every sketch, every bit, every performer. It's been a lot of fun. And it's been very educational, I think, for, for me, definitely yes. going oh, back. Oh, me right? too. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know I try to watch the episodes along with you guys, so I have more of a perspective <laughs> before I listen to yeah. your episodes. And it's actually like revisiting season one and now into season two. Uh, I, I think we see things in a different light, like specifically the Louise Lasser episode. I think Brad brought up some really good points about that that made me kind of rethink what I thought about that episode. So yeah, well done, fellas. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. That, that's one I mean, I haven't seen probably in 10 years because, and I had watched it so long ago and kind of wrote it off as, as a train wreck basically. And it was great to watch it again in the context of where it was in season one, what was happening before it would come again and just knowing more of the backstage uh, stories and history, what's going on. Uh, and it's a really fascinating, interesting episode that I don't think really gets the due that it should. It was fun to go through it again. So that again is the not ready for primetime podcast. You guys are a welcome addition to this SNL podcasting community uh, oh, that we you. have. Thank I know you. you've had our friend John Schneider uh, as the Buck Henry point person uh john's right. been on our podcast a few times he did up the buck henry episode so uh so he's 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 a great guy and just you guys are such a good great addition to this little snl <coughs> potosphere uh that we've created um, over here we're you. all buddies so yeah thank so, you it's been it's been a blast getting to know everybody and and being welcomed by everybody so yeah. yes thank you so much a lot of fun yeah we'll keep it up and today's an interesting one so we're talking about a controversial figure <laughs> in in SNL history, one Michael O'Donohue. So just just a brief kind of background with O'Donohue. So he helped found National Lampoon magazine. He worked with some of the original SNL cast on the National Lampoon Radio Hour. Uh, so he had a relationship with the cast before SNL. Uh, he was head writer at SNL uh, seasons one through three. He's co-head writer in season one. Uh, technically, along with Lorne, and then he took over the reins himself in two and three, came back for seasons seven and 11. Uh, so Michael O'Donohue very much intertwined with the history of SNL, <laughs> and we're here today to relitigate his case as an SNL Hall of Famer. He's been on the ballot since season one, you guys. So this is yeah. his fourth try, and before we get into it, let me give you the voting numbers. For O'Donoghue, okay. they're they're kind of eye opening. So season one, he got twenty six percent of the vote. Season two, he climbed a little bit, twenty seven percent of the vote in season two. <laughs> season three, eleven percent of the vote for Michael O'Donoghue. So this Oof. is definitely like a last gasp for for O'Donoghue, <laughs> hanging Uh-oh. on for dear life. Must Matt be if Ordeal. you're calling us in. Yeah, right. He's. Uh, I don't know. Gary's gonna. Gary's laughing. You're gonna be possibly part of uh, this. This might be a. Uh, I don't know. A bit of a funeral for his candidacy for the for the SNL <laughs> well, Hall of Fame. The man. The man did want a Viking funeral, so let's let's see what happens. Yeah, so we're giving it to him right here. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I'm gonna start with with uh, with you, Gary. Uh, I just want to open it up and uh, curious because you're probably out of the two. You're probably 
not a huge O'Donohue fan generally. Um, right. So why do you think O'Donohue isn't in the Hall of Fame at this point? You know, it, he is a really tough person, a really tough candidate for the Hall, in my opinion, Thomas, because I think he really swings for the fences every time he's writing something. And sometimes he knocks it out of the park, like with the Star Trek sketch. And other times he totally misses it. And he, especially when he's trying to be this dark, irreverent, dangerous comedian, sometimes those sketches do not land at all. He had a, one sketch in season one. It's a prank phone call to Lorraine plays a woman working at a an airline. And he has this totally masochistic prank phone call he does to her. Then I'd like to throw garbage at your face. <laughs> then I'd like to rent a truck, fill it full of scrap metal and park it on your kneecaps. <laughs> then I'd like to hit you in the lungs with a shovel, throw more garbage at your face, and then I'd like to lop off your thumbs with a grapefruit knife. Goodbye. Goodbye, and thank you for calling Transamerica. For me, just did not land. And I like dark humor. Don't get me wrong. That's not it. It's just sometimes with his dark humor, I feel like he totally misses the mark. And I know Brad doesn't totally agree with me. And you think that might just be really super off-putting to voters in a lot of ways. Some of his writing is very off-putting and some of it is so engaging. It's, I think he's so difficult because of this. Because he, the sketches, I feel the sketches that he puts time and effort into, like the Star Trek sketch, the Godfather sketch, these are really well thought out pieces. And I feel like some of his pieces just feel rushed and, and like he had to write something for the sake of writing something. And so he was trying to push the limit with those. And he doesn't always, they, they don't seem to work out well, in my opinion. Brad, do you think there's something to that? I think there's two reasons, really, why Michael O'Donoghue's not in yet. One, he's a writer, um, which, you know, historically in the hall, there's not that many writers that are in, right? And if they are in, they've also had a very predominant role in front of camera, right? Who's in so far? Is it Tina Fey as a writer and is it Seth? And Seth. Seth's in, yeah. And Robert Smigel is actually in, too, yeah. Smigel, so he'd be the third. So two of them, at least, have very prominent on-camera roles that I think help get them voted in, as well as, and this plays into my second point, just much more recent. I think a lot of current SNL fans, one, don't know who Michael O'Donohue is, and two, don't really appreciate, which I think we will get into, what he really did in helping with the creation of this show and actually having this show last more than one season and still exist today. So I think those are the things of why the reasons why he's not in yet and not scoring higher in the voting than I think he really should be. Yeah. I think you're, you hit the nail on the head as far as writers go. There seems to be uh, a big kind of blind spot for voters. And a lot of it is writers aren't on camera sometimes, especially with the older writers, we don't know, a lot of viewers don't know exactly what sketches that they were uh, behind. And for Michael O'Donoghue, what he is known for on camera is not necessarily great or what people like. Like Mr. Mike, a lot of people, Mr. Mike rubs the wrong way. So the one thing he's really known for as far as his face on camera turns a lot of people off. Oh, Mr. Mike, Mr. Mike, please tell me a least love bedtime story. Well, sure thing, you little imp, just hop up here on my knee and I'll tell you the story of the little train that died 
Okay, now one time there was a little train. We had to pull a giant load of scrap metal up the mountain. He had never pulled such a heavy load in his life, and so when he left the valley, his little wheel said, I hope I can, I hope I can, I hope I can, I hope I can. But before long, he picked up speed, and now the wheel said, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Soon the little train was whizzing right up the mountain, and now the wheel said, I know I can, I know I can, I know I can, I know I can. Heart attack, heart attack, heart attack, heart attack. Oh my God, the pain, oh my God, the pain, oh my God, the pain. I left my bills in the roundhouse, I left my bills in the roundhouse. And he died. And I don't think then you're open to a lot of the stuff that he wrote that he wasn't on screen for that is brilliant. You guys obviously have like a great perspective on him and his work because you're currently immersed in, in the early seasons <laughs> where he was head writer. So, uh, Brad, can you talk about O'Donohue's like role in those seasons and maybe what his comedic voice was? Well, as you mentioned, he was the head writer for the first three seasons, co-head writer for season one, although probably halfway through that season, Lauren as quote-unquote head writer really kind of pulls back a little bit, and it really is O'Donohue, and it really is Michael O'Donohue's voice you hear and feel for that very important first season of the show. You know, Marilyn Suzanne Miller, when she turned down the job as writer, told Lauren Michaels, you have to hire Michael O'Donohue, find Michael O'Donohue. And Michael was one of the first writers brought in. And not only was he brought in as a writer, he was key in bringing in key cast members. Michael O'Donohue, along with Ann Beats, were the biggest proponents to get John Belushi on the show. Lauren Michaels didn't want John Belushi. And Michael O'Donohue, from his relationship with him on National Lampoon, fought to get John on the show. So that's a huge part, even before the show even started, of how important he was. And then once the show got up and running, You've talked about it a bit in other episodes with people like Seth and Tina, like when they're the head writer and what they do, not only their writing, but the nurturing and support of the other writers and setting the tone of what the show is. When Lauren Michaels started Saturday Night Live almost 50 years ago, they wanted a show that was different and edgy and hip and new and different. And that's what Michael O'Donohue brought to this show. And he led with that mentality and he's the biggest reason I feel like Saturday Night Live was so edgy and so hip and so different was his voice that was not only his, and he did a lot of the writing himself and was very hands-on, but the other writers who hadn't had experience necessarily writing for TV or sketch, your Alan Zweibel, your Franken and Davis, he influenced that entire writing room. I think this is where it gets tricky because I think what Brad said is true. Like He had a huge, huge influence on the beginning of the show and the first few years, definitely. But I don't know how much, I guess I lose my focus with that in some of the pieces that you see that were clearly, that were written by someone else, like Alan's Bell, that you can see Michael O'Donohue's influence on. And I feel like this, those some of those sketches just kind of veer off. Like they had a good premise going into it. And then you can see the O'Donohue influence and it kind of takes it to another place that doesn't that feels misplaced with that sketch you know like he's trying to influence too much yeah there's a little bit of that i will also say i think a little bit of grace or whatnot needs to be given to these first few years because the show's brand new they had nothing to lean on they had nothing to compare it to they're going without a net and so i think you're going to have more misses than say you will now or in recent years 
because there's no template. They, they were setting up the template in real time. And so I feel like a lot of those misses, I think, might need to get a little bit of just, you know, a little bit of... Uh, of um, I think you said it. You said grace, right? Grace, like, yeah. You want to give it more forgiveness. I mean, one thing I, I would say before getting into the nitty gritty of what he wrote and what he had his hands on, a little bit of a... I'll try to do a Cliff Notes history lesson, Thomas, from the show. I don't know how many people realize, but Saturday Night Live, or Saturday Night as it was called was not a hit out of the gate. This was not day one, a hugely popular show. The show had to fight for its audience. It had to fight for its identity, had to fight for what it was. And even through the most of season one, it was not a hit. And there was no guarantee that there was going to be a season two until really near the end of season one in May when they won Emmy Awards. And that's what really finally pushed them over the top. And I think there's really four people that are really instrumental in keeping SNL alive, responsible for the success of this first season. And, you know, you could argue that without them, there would be no second season and there would be no show and you wouldn't have a podcast and we wouldn't have a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think there's, it's Lauren Michaels, obviously, Chevy Chase, uh, Dave Wilson, the director who won an Emmy, and then Michael O'Donohue when this, the show won for best writing, and he's the head writer. And it was for the episode that he had one of the best sketches of all time with Godfather Therapy. So, you know, he is instrumental in keeping this show alive and making it what it was and giving it the legs to then have a season two and a season three. And I, I don't think you can discount that. Can I counterpoint? <laughs> Brad, I got it first. Uh, <laughs> My counterpoint to that is, Brad, in that first season, two of the more influential shows were Lily Tomlin, Richard Pryor, and Michael O'Donohue had very little to do with either one of those shows. And so I just, I don't think that should be lost on you either, in that with those two shows, he clearly did not have a hand in a lot of those episodes. Can one of you, maybe Gary, remind the listeners why he wasn't too much involved in the Richard Pryor episode specifically? <laughs> sure. I mean, he he alienated. It seemed like like the Richard Pryor and his his uh, the writers that came in with him. Yeah, yeah. So honestly, though, Brad should tell the story because he knows the story better than I do, and he he tells mm-hmm. it very well. So I I will defer to Brad with this story. Well, no, uh, the short version is, uh, you know, Richard Pryor wasn't doing a lot of writing. He wasn't at the offices a lot during the week. So writers would go to his hotel room and pitch him ideas. And I forget half the story now, but basically Michael O'Donohue went to Richard Pryor's hotel to pitch a story or pitch jokes. And he was pitching jokes about George Wallace and uh, a racist comment George Wallace would have said about identifying a black man in the dark. And obviously, not surprisingly, Richard Pryor did not find it funny. And basically, like, almost threw a bottle of of wine or something over Michael O'Donoghue's head, like, scared him off. And Michael O'Donoghue was not seen for the rest of the week. Uh, (laughs) You know, he's trying to be edgy, trying to be funny. He went against somebody who really is edgy and funny and a badass and got caught. But, I, I, I mean, that's part of what I don't... I mean... Yes, he wasn't in those two episodes that much, but I, I, you can't knock him for the other 22 episodes he was involved in. <laughs> no, I, I'm not trying to knock him. I'm just saying that 
he was noticeably absent at certain times. And it wasn't only those two episodes. There were other hosts and other segments that he specifically said he would not write for. Like, he infamously hated the Muppets and would not write for the Muppets. You find that as a as a con against him? I mean, you I hate do. the Muppets. No, you hate the Muppets. Don't deflect. The But I do, because if you want the show to be successful, and stay with me here, if you want the show to be successful, you the show had to have the Muppets. That was just a condition of the show. And so if you want the show to be successful, you should work to make the show entire show successful if you're the head writer. Now, he goes on later years to say that he wants to burn the place down from the inside, and we can talk about that later. But I think if you are a head writer of a show or co-head writer, whatever, you would want everything to work. And he sabotages it in many different ways or tries to and sabotages certain guests and musical acts and whatever from the inside. And those are the things that I'm like, what, what are you doing? Why? Why? <laughs> he the said he sabotaging wouldn't write for Adult felt. is great. It's hilarious. He wouldn't write for Felt. Yes. He, Was he, not he puts on the, uh... ABBA on the Titanic. ABBA on the Titanic is a great bit. It's hilarious. It's so bizarre and out there. It's great. It's when, when they were lip syncing, they were lip syncing on the show. They should have been made fun of. But he didn't make fun of them for lip syncing anyway. <laughs> and, and, and just the only thing I would counter for the Tomlin and, and Pryor examples is he's not the boss. It is Lauren's show, remember? Lauren brought Lily Tomlin in and basically said, you know, you can do all your characters. He brought Richard Pryor in and said, you can bring your writers, you can bring your cast members. So I think as a writer, even though he's the head writer, in those two examples that you bring up, his hands are still a little bit tied by what Lauren wants him to do. Man, I think that's a good point. And uh, I will say this, like maybe aside from Richard Pryor and maybe Jim Henson, everybody else involved with the show, um, it seemed like they liked Michael. Like the cast members specifically, I don't know, I can't speak for all of the writers, but it seemed like the cast still liked him. They worked, they did, they worked, uh, most of them worked on his show uh, that he had after he left SNL. So in an odd way, it seemed like all of them, most of the people associated with the show liked and respected Michael, even though he had this kind of edgy edge Lord, I like to call like persona about, and he was still respected. It seemed <laughs> like in that building <laughs> in an odd way. I think everything to what Thomas just said, that they needed a leader, the writers and the, and the cast. And, this was that guy. He was that voice. He was that leader for them, along with Lauren and Chevy. A lot of cast members and writers have said that, that especially that first year, the three of them, Lauren, Chevy, and Michael O'Donoghue, were like the, the brain trust that were really deciding what that show was about and what was going to be on the air every week. I'd like to get into some sketches now, uh, and I think I'd like to start with the positives first, and then we'll kind of go on so gary uh what's a good michael o'donohue sketch that really sticks out to you you know i think one of the surprising sketches to me that we watched in season one is the norman bates school of motel management that he wrote for anthony perkins are you motel material let's find out with a simple quiz question one a guest loses the key to her room would you a Give her a duplicate key. B, let her in with your pass key. C, hack her to death. <laughs> Question two. Which of the following is the most important in running a successful motel? 
A, cordial atmosphere. B, courteous service. C, hacker to death with a kitchen knife. This is a sketch that I think was so well written from beginning to end. And the set direction and the performance by Anthony Perkins, everything brought it all together. But the writing in this piece is so smart and so funny. And just, it's that kind of off kilter humor that he's, he's good at. And when he hits it, he, he does really well. Uh, so that was, that was one for me that I thought really stood out as far as one that I, that is not as well known as some of the others. That's an example to me of like a, when he's focused, when his oddball, when his more harsh, dark stuff is actually pointed in the correct direction. I think you get something like that Norman Bates school of management sketch. And that's where some, somebody with his kind of unique perspective and a somewhat dark perspective, that's when it could really play out in a positive way. And that's something that I definitely highlighted as well. Brad, what do you what do you think about that one? You can you can give us another uh, good Michael O'Donohue <laughs> if you'd like to. Yeah, there there are many. Uh, the Norman Bates is great. I would say uh, the last voyage of the Starship Enterprise, which came at the end of season one. We're on a five year mission to explore space. We've only been out here for three years. Uh, sorry, it's the Nielsen's. If it was up to me, my kids like it. Wait, what? What are those Nielsen's? The alien keeps talking about Mr. Spock. If I remember my history correctly, Captain, Nielsen's were a primitive system of estimating television viewers once used in the mid-20th century. Man, we're meant to fly, he'd have better ratings. Is that what you're saying, Mr. Goodbody? I've had enough of this. George, Michelle, let's go. I'm going to tie one on. I'm with you, Kelly. I think I'll just go home. It's an example of, I think O'Donohue, especially in those early years, he did one of two things. He kind of did these really weird, dark solo pieces, often involving himself, where he would do really long and drawn out and intricate sketches like this one, where it's the famous uh, John Belushi impersonating Captain Kirk and Elliot Gould is the host. And he plays an NBC executive who comes on board the show, the ship and the show, and basically informs everybody the show's canceled. And John Neverly breaks character. He's Captain Kirk throughout it all. And it's just a brilliant, you know, spoof of the show and, a comment on television and just and it's 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 a really great example the end of season one where they're really finding their voice and starting to stretch themselves where it was a really great set and they had great costumes and props and it was a long piece like six seven minutes but nothing was wasted and nothing was missing and everything clicked and it just it was a perfect example of what a great spoof send-up sketch can be and it was all you know O'Donoghue's writing it's a really what good was, example of a of piece that he had taken his time to write, and yeah, it's he took a while to write took, that. Piece. Yeah, it was yeah. a couple of months. Yeah, weeks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was so well crafted too, and it wasn't dark. Like you know, we we that that's the word that tends to come up when we talk about O'Donohue is dark, demented, twisted, whatever. But this one was more of a straight, witty, building a world and and everything like that and there wasn't really like much dark weird humor it was more straight than you usually associate o'donohue with and and that showed me like the talent like he could he's actually he could do that when he wanted he had a witty mind and he he could do something like that without having to resort to just shock value 
because there was no shock value in that uh, Star Trek sketch. It was all just witty, great lines, great performances, obviously, too. But the material was there for those performances to shine. That's what really struck me about that one is there wasn't like a dark twist there. Absolutely. Yeah, it was different than what you would think a typical, right, quote unquote, typical Michael O'Donohue sketch would be. It's great. I think another one along those lines, too, that that I highlighted that was referenced already in this podcast was the Godfather Therapy sketch. Now, when we left off at last week's session, Vito was telling us about his feelings toward the Tataglia family. Vito? Well, the Tataglia family is causing me great personal grief. Also, also, I'm looking... Things are not going so well at my olive oil company. No. Oh, God, Vito, I think you're blocking. <laughs> one of the better sketches probably of those early years, certainly in season one, and great performances from Belushi doing his, his Vito Corleone from Lorraine was really great in that sketch. I think that was uh, Elliot Gould playing the therapist there. And that one... I mean, there were a lot of obvious great references to the movie, um, but that was another one that was just so, it's like you could see the craft involved in O'Donohue's writing there. Yeah, I mean, that one's fantastic. It's one. It's on the episode they win the Emmy for. You know, right before they went on the Christmas hiatus, they had kind of a little bit of a lackluster episode. Lauren wasn't very happy. And when they were on break over that season one holiday hiatus, Lauren... Chevy and Michael O'Donohue stayed in New York and basically wrote for three weeks. And all they did was write the Elliot Gould episode and the Buck Henry episode that came after that. So yeah, this is a great sketch on a fantastic episode. And I mean, you know, yes, Belushi had the Brando impression. That was him. And Lorraine had Sherry, which is a character she had brought from Groundlings. But O'Donohue wrote that sketch and intertwined it and put it all together. And and, and like, you know, it's it, that's why it's not just like an impression piece. It's a, it's a fully formed great sketch and that that's O'Donohue. Yeah. And I think that's a great point, Brett, is that he took these two characters and brought them together. And he really seemed to know how to write for Lorraine. And she knew how to take his pieces and and bring life to them as well. And the way he did it with the Sherry character and the Vito Corleone is it's very, very smart. And with John, to that point, I mean, one of the things John Belushi is so well known for is those weatherman rants on Weekend Update. That's O'Donohue. O'Donohue wrote all those Weekend Update rants that he did, that, you know, Ireland must be heaven because my mother's from there, and <laughs> and <laughs> the seasons come in like a line. Like Those are all Michael O'Donohue bits that he wrote because he knew John, knew John's voice, and knew how to write that slow burn. So John performs it all, but those are O'Donohue pieces. On this podcast, we've talked a lot about impressions, just kind of SNL fans in general. We talk about impressions, what makes a good impression, and certainly Belushi, especially in this sketch, does a good Brando. In this case, it's more of like a Vito Corleone impression, but there's some Brando in there, obviously. Belushi's a good impressionist, but being able to mimic and sound like the person only takes you so far in an impression. You need the angle. You need the writing there to really make it shine. And so that's where you need somebody like O'Donohue to bring what's already a good impression to life, you know? And, and I think, you know, it's, it's that him working with somebody and, and to your point, 
understanding their strengths. And I, I think, you know, he showcased that in something like Godfather therapy, uh, for sure. And in the Belushi update rants, that's one of the things I like love from those early years, honestly, the Belushi update yeah. rants and Belushi's a wild guy in and of itself. And he can go from zero to a hundred in half a second. But O'Donohue saw that voice and he, and, and he kind of made it shine. I think. I agree with that. I mean, I think he had the people that he knew how to write for and he did a good job with it. And he had, like Brad said earlier, I think, you know, he had a relationship with John that went back, you know, a few years. So he knew what he was capable of and was able to to write for him because of that. When you were talking about impressions, Thomas, I thought you were going to bring up the Michael O'Donohue master impressionist character that (laughs) came out on the Buck Henry episodes. yeah, so uh, so this was the more positive portion of the of relitigating Michael O'Donoghue yeah, 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 and no, everything. That's fine. Uh, but no, totally. Uh, I was definitely going to bring that up <laughs> at some point. I did want to get to maybe if we could do like one each of something that we liked, and then 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 we'll get into a lot of that nitty gritty because it does yeah, need to yeah. be talked about. So like maybe something from. One of the early seasons that you and uh, uh, Gary enjoyed from O'Donohue as well. I really liked the Quarry cereal commercial. Like I remember watching it's that so years good. ago. It's so good. I just watched it recently in preparation for tonight, and I just forgot how funny I think it is. <laughs> it's so good. They're just like crunching so loudly they can't talk over one. Another. It's. I really think that's an excellent piece. Out here on a farm, breakfast is our most important meal. That's why we start each day the natural way, with a big brimming bowl of quarry. <laughs> quarry contains no preservatives, no additives, no artificial flavoring. And it's made without the use of pesticides or inorganic fertilizer. Because quarry isn't grown, it's mined. Here's a ready-made cereal that's pure, 100% rocks and pebbles. With a hearty, old-fashioned flavor the whole family will enjoy. What's the song? Do, you, do either of you know what the song is that, that's in that commercial parody? Because it's so perfect. It sets the, it sets the stage so well. I, I want to say it's Gordon Lightfoot, but it's not. <laughs> but it it just it just even that like picking that that proper song to set the tone for Quarry Serial ad is it, just great. Yeah, yeah. O'Donohue very, writes very good, good, such good it. like clinical. It's like the, the the clinical nature of his writing, uh, which and uh, uh, I think O'Donohue at his heart is a nerd. He is. He's a big nerd and geek, and I can tell by with some of just his little things, some of his writing, and especially in this, it's very like the what he has Jane. Uh, say as the spokesperson is just very like straight laced and clinical and for such a good parody of those of those healthy cereal commercials and all that that's one thing like when i was watching when i watched these on vh1 as a kid or comedy central this is one of the ones that stood out to me uh this and like the swill water one uh just there's certain <laughs> commercial parodies that really stood out to me and and i was su- actually kind of surprised that that I, when i found out michael o'donohue was behind this quarry serial uh, one. Yeah, there's a lot of great sketches that you wouldn't think are O'Donohue sketches, and you find out they are. That's a perfect example. Now, what's another one for you, Brad? 
I mean, I'll wait to get into Mr. Mike when you start getting into the negatives. Um, but another really great sketch. <laughs> and granted, this is this is season one. And I will admit, he is very, Michael O'Donohue's presence is very season one heavy. Even though he was the head writer through two and three, I will admit his influence does start to wane a bit into season two and three, as even Lauren got a little tired of O'Donohue and Mr. Mike and leaned a little bit more on Franken and Davis in seasons two and three. But one of the things you have to remember when the show first started and it didn't know what it was doing, it was a lot of one minute sketches, two minute sketches, two people to one camera kind of thing. And early on somewhere, I forget what it was episode five or six. He wrote a sketch called Citizen Kane two, which one is a great satire on Hollywood and movies and sequels. And they did this with, you know, everyone knows Landshark. Landshark is actually part of a sketch called Jaws 2, where they were making fun of making a sequel to Jaws before they ever did and then ever made five more. Anyway, Buck Henry's episode, Citizen Kane 2, was the first time they really used multiple sets. They used almost the whole cast. They had wigs. They had, uh, you know, mustaches. It was just, they really upped the game from more than just two people with a one or two minute joke. It was a longer sketch, again, just production design, everything. And he really opened the door for them to realize how to do that and continue doing that. And I, again, I think he's gonna need a lot of credit for that. Well, Jedediah, here it is. My own newspaper, the New York Inquirer. And I'm going to turn this newspaper into something that this town will want to read. Why just look at this dribble. Noted mitten manufacturer retires. Well, it's been a slow day for news, Mr. Kane. Slow day for news, Bernstein. I'll show you a slow day for news. Take a headline, Bernstein. Crazed sniper guns down six. Lay up the innocent women and children angle and offer $10,000 for the madman's capture. Right away, Mr. Kane. Yeah, that's a fantastic sketch that I think upon, you know, watching that the first time or two, I had no idea that that was a Michael O'Donohue piece. That's another good example of one that just... You'd never guess, yeah. No. Yeah, that was a really good balance of dark, clever, and palatable all at the same time. It was just so clever. And yeah, if you're just familiar with the movie and the tropes and everything like that, I think O'Donohue was just so good about conveying that that exact tone and that exact um, sort of parody and satire that he was going for. That's that's such a wonderful one. There was one in, the, um, uh, in a Robert Klein hosted episode that was just bonkers it was the attack of the atomic lobsters <laughs> john belushi has been seized by an immense claw that's waving about oh it's horrible it's horrible he had his whole life ahead of him at least two or three more years anyway It's like one of the more bonkers, crazy things that that's been on SNL, but I think it's something that was so off the wall, but it actually worked because I know Brad and I share this as far as our SNL fandom goes. We love when SNL breaks the fourth wall, when they break format a little bit, when they try new things. And this attack of atomic lobsters was just nuts. Like it involved everybody. The audience was involved yeah. in the sketch and <laughs> both in both sketches in the good nights. It was just 
nuts you guys uh, i don't know if you guys have covered this one yet i, I forget where is it in season two or three or something no, it's maybe it's three. season yeah. it's season three when he comes back yeah, we haven't got there yet uh, i mean what are your thoughts are you excited to get to this one i mean <laughs> this is a this is a classic to me yeah well it's one of those rare instances not as rare in the first few seasons but where they kind of have a a running gag, a running theme throughout the whole episode. And this one, like you said, it's it's the biggest one they've done. They had tried for I, at least, I think, since season two to try to get this off the air. Him and Tom Davis had worked on this for, for ages, and they kept trying and kept pushing it. And either the director would say no, or the art department would say no, or Laura would say no. They kept trying and trying to get this this epic, you know, episode-long runner on. And then when they finally did it, it just, it, it so paid off. It's so funny. It's so out there. I love how absurd this is and I'm excited to like watch it in the context of the entire episode and as part of the season too, because it really is such a well, again, well thought out long, big piece. Yeah, it was fantastic. And so all these were examples of things that O'Donohue did, uh, some of which are surprised him to many of us SNL fans that we didn't even know he was behind. These are all great examples of, of the positive stuff that he contributed to comedy into the show, uh, but there's a reason why we're here relitigating his Hall of Fame candidacy. Why he's not already in the SNL Hall of Fame. Why he's probably not going to be in, quite frankly, based on the voting numbers. So, uh, so Gary, I'm going to come in hot here with. Uh, uh, I'm going to ask you your thoughts here on uh, my- Michael O'Donohue, master impressionist. Yeah, <laughs> we're treated to Michael O'Donohue, master impressionist, a few times. Both Buck Henry episodes in the first season, actually, he comes on and his first impression is of Michael Douglas. I wondered, what if someone took uh, a, a very large steel needle, say 15, 18 inches long, large steel needles with um, real sharp points, and plunged them into Mike's eyes? What, what would his reaction be? Huh? I think it might go something like this. <laughs> And then later in the season, we get his impression of Tony Orlando and Dawn with two women as well with him. Again, what it would be like with needles stuck in their eyes. And it's just him screaming and flailing on the floor. This is one that I'm like, on paper, I get it. I understand it. But then I have to watch it and listen to it. And I'm like, okay, this is not... This is a little too much over the top. And the second time he does it, like he does the impression, they go to commercial, they, Buck Henry comes back for good nights and he's still flailing on the ground screaming. I just, it, no one seemed to think it was funny that time in the audience or, or really Buck Henry when he came back. It's an example of something to me that really didn't hit and was done just to be edgy. And I know O'Donohue says apparently that it, uh, he was inspired uh, um, by a real life like he dealt with migraines and stuff so apparently that's what inspired this is how it felt to have migraines and everything but i mean we don't know that <laughs> we don't know the reason it certainly wasn't conveyed here there certainly didn't seem to be a, a coherent reason for this other than to just kind of be edgy and it's almost sort of like the o'donohue that i don't like is hey look at me look what i'm doing i'm an edge lord and i'm doing this just to get a reaction like that's the o'donohue i don't like i think this is a good example yeah, I'll give you that. I, I will say, I'll argue against that, that y- you have to take swings where you don't know if you're going to hit or not. And so I, I don't love these impressionist bits myself, 
Um, he does them twice here. He comes again in the second season and does it with the Morbin Tabernacle Choir. This then leads to Mr. Mike's Least Love Bedtime Stories, which runs for four, I think, four sketches, which again, some people really love, some people hate. But, you know, the overarc of it, it is funny. It does lead to a few a few good bits in season three. Uh, there's a sketch that they do, Mr. Mike's Rickety Rat Club, where he kind of, he introduces a, it's a satire in the Mickey Mouse Club, which I think is really funny. And it's a great sketch with Buck is in it and Buck has a ball. The whole cast is in it. It's just so dark and depressing, but Buck is just having a blast. Okay, Ratketeer roll call, count off now! <laughs> Willard! It takes like the Mr. Mike vibe and his idea, but even if it wasn't introduced by Mr. Mike, and even if that Rick, that that sketch was just introed by itself on its own, it'd be really, really funny. And, and my favorite Mr. Mike thing he does at all, and it's in season three, is the Ray Charles episode, where at the end of the episode, right before the good nights, Ray Charles at the piano, the cast is all out there singing. Michael O'Donnell comes out and he interrupts everything and they say, oh, hi, Mr. Mike. And he offers up that they have a painting, that a Monet painting that they're donating for uh, Blind Institute and all the, you know, raising money for charity is going to go to help the blind. And he, he, as he reveals the painting by taking down the curtain, all that's in the frame is, please don't tell him, something like that. And he goes on to describe this Monet painting that is not there to Ray Charles and keeps going on and on. And then, you know, he finishes and Ray says, thank you so much, Mike. I'm so happy of all the awards I've ever won. This is this is probably the best and it means so much. And Michael, Michael Downey says, okay, I'll see you at the party. And he walks off and then Ray Charles looks towards Cameron and he goes, what Mr. Mike doesn't know is at the after party, there's going to be 10 or 12 of the biggest black dudes he's ever seen and are going to whip him upside the head. And I feel like it's, it's so smart because the joke is all on him. They take this Mr. Mike character and just turn it and they make him the butt of the joke. And I think it's, it's, it's one of the, it is my favorite Mr. Mike sketch mm-hmm. bit of, of the three years. It's my, I think it's just so smart. And something like that doesn't feel too mean spirited because you know that Ray Charles is in on the joke. Like, right. you, you know, you know, yeah. it's obvious that he's in on the joke and then it gets turned back around. So I, that's what I, that's, I think what, you know, what we mean when we've said in this episode, like if it's harnessed correctly, then it's like it could be really good. And I guess that speaks to, you know, I guess if you do take swings, you're going to miss a lot of the time and it's just going to fall flat and come off as as very mean. And that's one of the main critiques about O'Donohue. And that's something that when we did roundtables, um, especially after seasons like one and two and O'Donohue was brought up, one of the main critiques from some of our panelists was that he's just mean without a comedic purpose. And, and sometimes I can see that, but was it just him being inherently mean or was it just him feeling that he needed to take swings and being okay with sometimes it wouldn't land? I think that's a really good question that sometimes I feel like he felt that he had to be mean and or dangerous just to feel heard or seen. And it's kind of like a Look, look at me, how look how crazy I can be. And then you have the story that Brad told about, you know, in the hotel room with Richard Pryor when he, you know, 
threatens to hit him upside the head with a wine bottle or whatever. And Michael O'Donohue cowers and he's like, all right, never mind. It just feels like sometimes he's trying to be mean or dangerous for the sake of it and to seem like tougher than he might actually be. But I don't know because I never met him. I think it's just a, 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 it's a, you have to kind of understand the time a little bit. I just, you know, what people's mentality of what comedy was back then or what people would do for like, again, in this, the whole lampoon idea, not everything was done for, for a laugh. I mean, O'Donoghue will admit that not everything that he wrote and put out there was to make people laugh. He actually, I think was quoted once saying something like, like laughter is the least, I forget, I'm going to mess it up so I'm going to try. But basically, like, yeah, it wasn't like he was trying for laughs and missing. He was trying to offend. He was trying to be edgy. He was trying to make you feel uncomfortable. And I think he succeeded in a lot of that. And I think, yes, was was he a little bit maybe now, like, you can look back and say, oh, he was too mean and just doing it to be mean. Yeah, sure. But if that wasn't there, would you get the more, quote unquote, acceptable meanness level of meanness from the show where they were jabbing at whether it's Gerald Ford or Hollywood or Bathtubs of the Stars or Claudine Langey, stuff you thought was funny, funny enough, would you have had that without him? Or is it, or I guess vice versa, is it worth getting that to get some of the things that are a little bit too mean? Because I, you can't, like, where do you draw the line? Like, how do you know where the line is of what's funny enough and where do you stop? Especially in the moment, it's easy 40 years after the fact to say this is where sure. the line is, that's not funny. How do you know at the time? Ooh, I mean, I mean, if you read, uh, you know, Dennis Perrin's biography on Mr. Mike or the the backstage history of Saturday Night Live, there's a lot of O'Donohue stuff that did not get on the air. Like, don't think like everything he wrote was on. Like, he definitely pushed boundaries where stuff did not get on. <laughs> sure. But I, th- I don't know that you can give him all the credit either of like taking the show to the edge. That's all. Like, I'm not saying giving him the all, but I'm saying if he's not there, you remove a vital piece. And I legitimately don't know if that show is still around if he's not there for those first three years. Yeah, I think the show built so much of their early reputation on trying to be counterculture and edgy and things like the Muppets or the Polaroid commercials would say otherwise, but it was as counterculture <laughs> you could, as you could be while still being on network television and trying to make money and stay on the air and everything like that. So they were always straddling that line. And if that's what they were going for, I guess at the time, unless they got, you know, Doug Kenny to go come along with Michael O'Donohue. I mean, O'Donohue was, was the person if they want, if that's what they were going for to push the boundaries and and everything like that. And I want to know what you guys think about this and something always, you know, over the years I've, seen Michael O'Donohue's sketches, I've read about him, and there's something about him that I never took seriously in his mean-spirited nature. And he always struck me as just a big nerd who was trying so hard to be edgy. But in reality, he had insecurities. In reality, he was pretty much a geek, but he tried so hard to play up this edgelord persona, and I always just looked at him as a nerd that was just put, put, put like playing a character almost. And, and I've never, obviously never met the guy, but that's just always how I viewed him. Cause I know people like that. I know people whose true nature is like a lot of insecurity, 
they feel put upon by society or whatever, and they lash out or they express themselves as an, in an edgelord sort of way. And that's how I always looked at him. And I just never took his meanness, quote unquote, as seriously as a lot of others, especially uh, evidently as our voters have taken it. I don't necessarily disagree with what you said, but none of the reasons why I think Michael O'Donoghue should be in the Hall of Fame have to do with his meanness. It has to do with, you know, like, it, it, you know, he, what, how he guided the show. I, the, the, all the sketches of his that I think are the best are not mean sketches. They're ones that people look at and like, oh, my God, that's him. And I right. just, you know, and it's that overarching, like, you've, we've talked with other head writers on the show that, you know, have been nominated, either have gotten in or not, even Adam McKay recently. You know, they set the tone for what the show is and so much of what this show was when it started. And again, remember, set the foundation for the next 49 years I think does fall a lot on his shoulders. I think to that point, Brad, one of the biggest things, one of the biggest obstacles probably of Michael O'Donohue being in the hall is Michael O'Donohue on camera. Because I agree. If you don't, I agree if you 100%. take out the Mr. Mike, if you take yep. out the impressionist yep. stuff yep. and you just hang it on the writing and that's, and if people know, that's the other thing is people knowing which sketches he's responsible for. Right then I think your voting totals would be much higher, honestly. Yeah, like, I don't think the average person would know that he wrote the Star Trek sketch or the Godfather therapy sketch. Like, two of the most well-known sketches in those early years, no one would have ever guessed he wrote those. Yeah, I think I think just ultimately these uh, writers from that era and probably up until the mid-90s or early 90s have an uphill climb as far as the SNL Hall of Fame. Like, Jack Handy, to me, is an SNL Hall of Famer. But, you know, I, I just think people, he gets, he gets lost in the shuffle for some reason. Maybe we have some younger folks voting, and uh, it's just an uphill battle. Jim Downey's not in the SNL Hall of Fame, and there, there, I don't think there's been That's anybody ridiculous. in— Yeah. Yeah, there, I don't think there's anybody in the show's history who's had more of an impact on the po- political side, which is, like, obviously huge for SNL than Jim Downey. So I think writers from— around that time are just at such a disadvantage. And I worry to bring this up, but I mean, there is something to be said that, you know, Lauren leaves the show and Gene comes on and tries to take over in year six, gets fired. Dick Ebersol comes in at the end of season six and he asks Lord Michaels, what do I do? And Michaels tells him to hire Michael O'Donoghue. Now, Granted, I I'm I hesitant to bring it up because it, it it flamed horribly and it did not work. You know, there was one episode that finished that season. Then I think he did it was like seven or eight episodes of the next season before he was fired. But you know, they were trying to find that identity. Like, what can we do? And they go back to him again. Doesn't work. And then you know, Lorne brings him back when he comes back. Also, doesn't work. So I think those two examples don't necessarily help his. His legacy, but it just says something to the fact like when the show was on its le- dying legs and like, what do we do? They go back to him. They bring him back in to try to help keep the show going. I don't know how many other uh, writers are going to get relitigated after being fired three times from the show and proclaiming he wants to burn it down from the inside when... <laughs> When he gets hired back, yeah. well, that yeah, time. that whole second, I mean, I know, <laughs> yeah, I, I it, it pains me to say the reason we don't have Catherine O'Hara as an SNL cast right? member is Michael O'Donoghue. Like it just, yes, that hurts. But I can't say enough how 
how invaluable he was those first three seasons. Like, there's legitimately a chance that there is no Saturday Night Live. Like, Ann Beats herself has said it. Ann Beats has gone on saying, mm. I mean, without Michael O'Donoghue, there would be no Saturday Night Live. And she's right. Like, I, I just feel like not just him alone, but he's part of that very small group of people that they were instrumental in creating the show, keeping it alive, and 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 laying that foundation of what it became for all these years. Brad, can you remind us again why Catherine O'Hara, uh, why she isn't, cat uh, wasn't a cast member? No, at, at SNL. I re- no, like, I can't. So I, what happened? I may, Thomas, I may have misspoke. Was, Thomas. Yeah, it might the, have been I think that was that I was Smigel. I remember reading I about Smigel's this, fault. but I, I think I, <laughs> I think so, our listeners would love to. Yeah, Gary. So Catherine O'Hara was was hired by Dick Ebersol to come to leave SCTV and and join saturday night live and the the day of their first meeting michael o'donohue walks into the room with a can of spray paint and spray paints danger on the wall and says this is what the show is missing and just kind of goes off on a little rant and Catherine o'hara probably a bit more passionate than you did just now but yes <laughs> yeah because i'm not a crazy person <laughs> Uh, and Catherine O'Hara says, "Never mind. I'm going back to Canada, where people are nice and normal." Gosh. <laughs> yeah, maybe we have a lot of Shit's Creek fans that are voting on the Essendon Hall of Fame, and they know this, hey. and <laughs> it's a strike against him. See, so stuff like that. So spray painting danger on the wall in his in one of his first meetings that strikes me as so try hard to be edgy that I can't take it seriously. To me, when I hear a well, story like that, in, I'm like, in nineteen. 19- in 1980, 81, like, yeah, I think the moment like, had passed, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, I can't, I can't hear a story like that and say, oh, what, what a jerk or what, he's this and that. I just think, like, what a dork. <laughs> like, like, it just makes yeah. me laugh. I don't know. It's, it's hard to take seriously. And it shouldn't be lost on uh, SNL historians that just a little footnote, and I don't know if this plays into voting or not, I mean, maybe a few people, but... Michael O'Donohue was the first person that you saw on camera in SNL's history. Right? Yeah. Like yeah, in the Wolverine with this, sketch? With yeah. the sketch that he wrote. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's that's something. And it's it's a dark sketch. Like, there's dark humor to it. Uh, the Wolverine sketch with him and Belushi. Let us begin. Repeat after me. I would like... I would like to feed your fingertips to feed your fingertips to the Wolverines. To the Wolverines. <laughs> Next, I am afraid. I am afraid. We are out. We are out. Of badgers. Of badgers. Would you accept? Would you accept a Wolverine? A Wolverine in its place. In its place. He has a heart attack, and then Belushi has a heart attack, and Chevy comes on. That's something in his favor, I guess. He's the first person on camera to say a line and also writes the first sketch of the show. So, well, and there's like other little things that, you know, I feel go with the whole, the head writer responsibilities of, uh, you know, Gary, the Lily Tomlin episode she hosted, what was one of your favorite bits from that? The first, uh, the, yeah. the hard hats. Okay. Hard hats. But another one, when she does the, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> we'll go backwards. So Gary, yeah. one of your favorite, one of your favorite bits from the Lily Tomlin episode, when she hosted early in season one is she does the St. James infirmary, right? Where she sings with the band. 
Sure. It, yeah. It, Michael O'Donohue, his and the band's all dressed as nurses. Oh, the Howard nurse, Tur- the all nurse band. It's, it's yeah, Howard yeah, yeah. Tur- and yeah. Michael O'Donohue. He, it was his idea to have them dress up as nurses, and thus then they go on to do, uh, you know, the bees. They dress up as the bees with killer bees. They do brighter frankincense. Right. So like he adds those little things. Like he brought in Jerry Rubin for that Jerry Rubin wallpaper in season one. Like he has these kind of little. You can see his influence. The, the Dead String Quartet, Cold Open, they wrote a couple times. Like Chevy wrote it, but you, it's a total Michael O'Donoghue influence. It's just, you know, the, I, you can see his fingerprint in so many things. Sure. Yeah. All right, guys. So I like to, uh, I like to end these things with kind of a little summary, I guess, of a possible case for, uh, to be made for this person's SNL Hall of Fame candidate. So, Gary, I'll start with you. Just a, li- just a little summary for everybody is there a reason why voters might want to consider Michael O'Donohue for the SNL Hall of Fame? You can p- pass to Brad if you'd like, but <laughs> I wanted to give the floor to you. No, I'll go first so that I say yeah. I'll, I'll go first so that I say everything first, and then Brad can say, "Oh, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, good yes, point." <laughs> and then then <laughs> no, Jamie I, will play the music. Right. I think the strongest piece of evidence for his candidacy are the long form sketches that he wrote and took time and care to write that are brilliant, the Godfather, the Star Trek. And to Brad's point earlier, he kind of set the tone for the show moving forward with those sketches. Good night, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Brad, same question. Why might voters consider Um, Michael O'Donohue for the SNL Hall of Fame? I mean, I would would look at it in a historical context. I think he was the first head writer of the show. He was so responsible for the vibe, feel, and creative output that was coming from the show for those first three years, especially that first year where if it did not succeed, that show was so expensive. It was not a success. There was no reason NBC wouldn't have canceled it. So I, I really do believe without Michael O'Donohue running that ship with Lauren those first three years, there's a very good likelihood that there's not a Saturday Night Live today. And I think he he's owed that. I do. I think he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. No, I didn't vote for him the first time. I don't think I voted for him the second time. But he's one of those athletes who, like, after a few years and he's been on the ballot, you're like, yeah, you have to reward him for the what he did. He's not Babe Ruth. He's not Hank Aaron. But he's somebody who deserves a place in the hall. So there's that. He deserves a place in the hall is uh, where we leave things. What do you think? Does he deserve a place in the hall? So far, it's been a resounding no. Did their argument turn it around? I love the term relitigate, uh, as Thomas mentioned at the top. Very cool. Let's go to one of those sketches they mentioned near the end of their conversation right now, and that is the Godfather sketch. Um, Godfather Therapy, I believe is what it's called. And we're going to head to that right now. Sorry I'm late, people. Sorry I'm late. Now, before we begin, I'd like to say that because of a personal commitment, group will start at 8 That's 8 o'clock and not 7 o'clock, 
next Tuesday, if that's all right. Okay, wonderful. Now, when we left off at last week's session, Vito was telling us about his feelings toward the Tataglia family. Vito? Well, the Tataglia family is causing me great personal grief. Also, also, I'm looking. Things are not going so well at my olive oil company. No. Oh, Carrie? God, Vito, I think you're blocking. <laughs> Vito? Blocking what? Your true feelings about the Tataglia family, guy. Vito, do you want to respond? <laughs> All right. The Tataglia family is moving into my territory. They're moving in on uh, the numbers, prostitution, a restaurant, linen supply. Now they want to bring in drugs. Also, they shot my son Santino 56 times. Ah, <laughs> ah, now we're getting someplace. What do you think about that? Drugs? I'm against them. <laughs> we, have to, we have to go in there. Vito, I'm not kidding. You're still blocking your real feelings. What about the rest of it? <laughs> Vito? <laughs> well, a restaurant little supply was never a big money maker in the first place. Oh, you're so hurting you Vito and you're covering up. <laughs> All right. All right, you're right. It's hurting me. Numbers alone, I'm losing 15, 20 grand a week. Vito, 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 you're still blocking. Now, how do you feel about them shooting your son 56 times? Santino. Terrible. <laughs> we had to go to the mattresses. Clemenza sleeps with the fishes. Johnny is finished in Hollywood. They blew up Michael's wife and lovely car. <laughs> the Taglias, the Bazzinis, the Boyardis, they all have contracts out on me. They had a feds are watching me. Keith Offer is investigating me. The ASPCA is after me about this horse thing. I'm gonna hold some of the people. Settle down, people, settle down. Vito will tell us how he feels when he's ready. Vito? Vito, are you ready? Could have been Senator Corleone, Governor Corleone. Vito, Vito, you're Vito, this is not getting us any place. Now, I want you to act out your feelings about the Tataglia family non-verbally. Not talking? Do I have to? Yes. Listen, oh. man, like we're with you. We're really on your side. I mean, like, we know where you're coming from. Trust, trust us. Mm -hmm. Please, okay. reach okay. out, man.
How do you feel about what Vito just went through? <laughs> well, I thought it was really beautiful. And like I can really relate to what kind of changes Vito was going through. Because I went through the same thing when I was deciding to be a stewardess. It was so weird. My friends were I'm not kidding, man, you know. Like my friends kept asking me, guys, Sherry, why do you want to be a stewardess, you know? And like I had to get super reflective and ask myself, well, guys, Sherry, why do you want to be a stewardess, you know? And like I realized that it's because I love people. <laughs> I really do. I love to serve them and help them try to fall asleep sitting up and everything. And, well, also, I really had to get out of Encino, man. <laughs> I am not kidding. It was really getting hairy, you know, like my boyfriend Brad and me were supposed to get married and everything, you know? So I was making a peach cobbler for his mother, and I overheard her say, look, the chicks is making us a Presbyterian pie. Gross <laughs> me out royal, man. I thought, some people, you know. And so I knew I had a bitch and bot and a good personality, so, you know, I just left town, and I became a stewardess, you know, and then I grew so much emotionally, I couldn't believe it, because, like, I went back to Encino, and everybody seemed so immature. It was unreal, you know. <laughs> you know, doctor, I think you're that Norman Mailer is right. You can't go home. Okay. Okay, now before I forget, group will begin at 9 o'clock and not 7 o'clock next Tuesday, if that's okay. 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 All right. That is uh, Godfather Therapy. And uh, it's an example of what O'Donohue could do when he didn't live by his mantra, which is laughter is the lowest form of comedy uh, or the lowest output. I forget exactly how uh, Matt put that, but um, it's interesting. Very interesting. So I want to thank Brad and Gary. I want to thank obviously Thomas and Matt. Uh, and I want to thank you, the listeners, for being patient with us as we've uh, experienced a couple of delays recently. And uh, we're we're getting there. We're we're turning the corner. Maybe I need to go to Godfather therapy. Maybe that's it. But do me a favor, and on your way out, as you walk past the weekend update exhibit, turn out the lights, because the SNL Hall of Fame is now closed. Thanks for listening to the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. Make sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at SNLHOF. This is Doug Denant saying, this is Doug Denant saying, see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>